take as little as three minutes to see if you could save on motorcycle insurance with Progressive. Come on, you've spent more time than that trying to name your bike. Hmm, how about the Crusher? I guess it's not really crushing anything. The Silver Bolt? No. Oh, oh, what about Pepper? Mysterious. Is it a pet or a condiment? Surprise! It's a motorcycle. Uh, no, that's stupid. Get a quote in as little as three minutes at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to a special guest episode of That Trippy Show. This week, I read Tom Etzel's piece in the New York Times and realized it's a must-read, and we had to have him back. The thing is, what happened in Tennessee is not an isolated incident. It's a plan. These examples of MAGA Republicans drastically expanding the use of government power that are not isolated, it is being carefully orchestrated. Tom's column this week, titled The Republican Strategist Who Have Carefully Planned All of This, is a must-read. It will be in our show notes. It gets into how the right came to embrace intrusive government. Alex, where should we get started? So Joe and I have been talking about your article for the last couple of days. It's Thursday when we're recording this now. And you really peel back some of these layers of the onion in, in kind of a way that I don't, I don't think a lot of people have, have really understood. I wanted to start with how you your, your lead, which really gets into the whole thing. And you said, Republican leaders are now adopting increasingly autocratic measures, using police powers of government to impose moralized regulations, turning private citizens into enforcement officers, and expelling defiant elected Democrats, just as county Republican parties, particularly in Western states, are electing militia members, Christian nationalists, and QAnon believers to, to key posts. Uh, this is everywhere, right? Well, mostly everywhere. The, I, I would like to see a lot more local reporting. Uh, of what's going on with uh, Republican county and uh, city committees across the country. I think a lot's going on there that I touch on here. But I think if we had not had such a horror show with newspapers and local newspapers closing, uh, we would see much more evidence of this. I think it's, you see it in Miami-Dade and then across the country you see it uh, in Oregon and Clackamas County and another county there and also in Idaho and in the state of Washington. But I suspect that the Republican Party is open to this kind of influence because the whole structure is built on what are called precinct captains or precinct leaders. It's very easy to win one of these offices. Often, they, no one even runs for them. So anyone can step in and try to become a, a member of the executive committee. The Christian Coalition did this way back in the 80s. They took back, they took over a whole bunch of state parties in the South and Midwest. And basically the same thing is going on now, except you're getting Proud Boy members, Oath Keepers, others coming in who are really on the fringes of politics, way fringes of politics. And they're winning office often because there's really no competition facing them and no one is challenging them. And party leaders are, are accepting this without complaining, basically, that, that the Republican chairman of the Miami-Dade said, basically, we represent a whole diverse group of people and uh, that the Proud Boy members who are on the committee uh, just reflect reflect that diversity. It's, it's a, uh, we are in strange times. 
Yeah, I mean, you point out the county Republican parties in Oregon are choosing Proud Boys and election deniers as party chairs and the, the January 6th insurrectionists on the Miami-Dade GOP executive committees and DeSantis firing the Hillsborough state attorney who is an elected Democrat over abortion prosecutions. I mean, you, you really list a lot of things in this piece that I don't, I mean, in its totality, the way you go through it and and about how it's sort of, it, it's it's a calculated long-term plan of Republican strategists to, that got us here and and how how close we really are. I think people still don't really understand the true danger of the threat. Can you get into that a little bit about how they're using these state, you know, sort of la- as David Pepper would say, laboratories of autocracy, you know, where you've got this weird, well, not weird, co- but a coalition of, you know, ultra extreme, ultra wealthy GOP mega donors, uh, and they're aligning with with the resentment you know, that's being fueled by Trump and, and you know, working class and sort of b- building that together and creating this movement that really is about about taking power for the minority. Uh, well, a lot of this began really in that, well, it's got a long, long history, but it re- in a short term, the 2010 election was crucial when uh, Karl Rove and Eddie Ed Gillespie together put together a whole plan of attack to take over state legislatures across the country. And they put a lot of money into it. And again, those state legislative races turned out to be a lot more easier to win because a lot you get a very low turnout. And 2010 was a wave year for the Republican Party. That put them in the position to control Republican parties, governor, state senate, state house, across the board in many, many states. Since then, the effort has been basically now to do to make legal what Trump tried to illegally do in 2020. Trump tried to get state parties to overturn their their the election results in their states. Georgia is the prime example of that, but uh, he tried to get party leaders to basically send alternative electors saying that they were the legitimate ones and not the electors who had been chose, chosen by the voters. This issue is now much more dangerous in the sense that a, a number of, I think, 13 states have enacted bills that give the state legislature the power to decide the outcome of elections. That means if, if in a close election, say Biden wins in 2024, but it's close, the the state legislature can use all kinds of grounds to say this is not was not a legitimately conducted election, and really Donald Trump was the victor. And adding to this is a current pending case before the Supreme Court, something versus More Harper. versus Harper, yeah, yeah. And, and that that court case has the potential to affirm this power on state on the part of state legislatures to control elections. And if you want to have a way of minority controlling elections and overturning results, this takes things that another whole leap forward. Uh, this is the vehicle to do it. And the question is whether the Supreme Court, which is six to three 
Republican with five of those six Republicans uh, pretty far to the right, I mean, quite far to the right, will they go for this controversial legal theory that underpins the argument uh, for granting state legislators legislators this power? That, that power would be crucial really only if the election in 2024 is, is somewhat close. And so there's enough wiggle room to, to claim illegalities change the outcome. Uh, but we are very close on the verge of doing this. In the meantime, I don't want to run on and on, but in the meantime, a lot of Republicans are doing things like DeSantis of basically declaring that an elected official who is not willing to support uh, Republican policies, they're basically ousting those elected Democratic officials from office. They're doing the same thing with cities, where they're ruling that cities, state legislatures are ruling that cities cannot, <laughs> for example, set their, cannot adopt liberal immigration policies. So you, you have a, a really, uh, well, an anti-democratic, forced, anti-lowercase democratic uh, forced uh, developing a lot of momentum and strength in the Republican Party. It, it's fueled, I want to read the, this quote, extremely, it's fueled by extremely wealthy individuals in an era of high economic inequality and a voter base motivated by cultural and demographic threat that has a hard time winning electoral majorities on the basis of their policy agendas, you know, high ta high end tax cut agenda for their elite base and a culturally reactionary agenda for the electoral base. It, th this is what gives it the, the power of pulling that coalition and, and funding it and continuing to grow. You know, almost like literally people, as I was saying, I remember we talked a, a year or so, some, I think before the 2022 election, and, you know, there was, we were, at the time, a lot of the people I was talking was, could, could you get people to understand this is really autocracy versus democracy? Would they understand what autocracy is? But this thing continues down a very dangerous track. I think you quote Pippa Norris pointing out that conservatives in a lot of these states have their backs against the wall, wall and they're sort of running down an up escalator. You know, the conservatives have capitalized on institutional features of U.S. elections that allow Republicans to seek to dismantle checks on executive power and in a, in a way become a, you know, autocratic minority rule. And I, I, I really want you, you to talk about that danger and where you, where you see it right now. One of the real problems is that a lot of this takes place beneath the national radar scope, it takes place in states and in county political parties. And when Nebraska does something that's interesting, but people don't follow Nebraska politics, or when Florida even, they do somewhat now because DeSantis has a lot of attention on him. But when Oklahoma does things, when the, for example, does recently, Missouri state legislature is, is now considering defunding, defunding libraries in the state because a judge has ordered the return of books that had been banned. So as a way to get around the ban, they're going to just shut down the library. This is really, you know, it, it'll show up as an eight-inch story in the New York Times on page C12, but it doesn't really capture 
the totality of what's going on, which is all these little pieces clicking here and there, except that the big piece comes all together in this case before the Supreme Court. And again, that's, uh, there was some attention focused on that, but lately there has not been much. And I, uh, the court wants to rehear the case, so I'm not sure what the status is at this point. Well, it's kind of like in 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 uh, our friend Rich Hassan points this out too, and I think you quote him, and then he had a piece out in Slate with I think Dahlia Litwick, and it, it, his point was this is all kind of like part of the whole strategy of the kind of flooding the zone with shit, for lack of a better phrase, where there's so many things happening at once, where you know the Tennessee thing happens. You get a proud boy in Idaho, there's a Supreme Court case, and there's just this huge list of things that, you know, it, it's, and we, Joe and I talk a lot about how the media can kind of fall into these traps, but it, it's it's almost impossible for like a, anybody, us, anybody to, to track all this stuff and react in a, in a rational way because it is just such a long list. Uh, it's both a long list, I think, and a list of a lot of includes people don't sense that how, how these all these fit together they might say oh that's terrible that uh they're, they're not funding the libraries there that's terrible that uh DeSantis is trying to fire this uh elected duly elected prosecutor but they, they don't see all of it as part of a larger picture and what you really have is a Republican Party now, as as the column points out, quoting a lot of people, a Republican Party that faces minority status and it doesn't want to do what it would need to do to expand its base, i.e. appeal to more moderate voters and appeal to minorities. It wants to keep itself basically where it is. That this has worked to some extent. Donald Trump pulled a real, whatever you want to call it, a hat trick in the uh, 2016 election, where a lot of people thought that the white working class was no longer adequate and Christian uh, conservatives were a declining population. But he energized and mobilized them and got them to actively sense that their conservative values were under assault. You see this in, with a polarized nation. And you take Christian conservatives, even though the white evangelical community is declining as a percentage of the population, they are not declining as a percentage of the electorate. In other words, even as they decline, their turnout gets better and better. They've got their backs to the wall, so they're going to, people who are threatened, turn out like crazy. This has worked recently to the advantage of the Democrats, who in 2022 suddenly were on the defensive and threatened by the Dobbs abortion decision. That changed the whole abortion debate and the whole politicization of the issue. It flipped it on its head, and Democrats became the group that turned out to defend the abortion rights, and Republicans that felt less need to because they had the Supreme Court now in their on their backs holding holding them up so they didn't felt they didn't need to turn out so much so you, these issues are when you when a group or a large constituency feels uh, that that they are 
that their very way of conducting their lives, and that's the way people now think in polarization, that, that what their values, their religious behavior, their uh, the way they bring up their children, the sex life that they have, that they approve of, all of these are now at stake in elections, and it's made voting a much more emotional experience for people. They feel it in their gut that if, if especially what they feel is that if they lose, they really lose like a piece of their identity or a big piece, and that's that's. That's the sort of new politics that we have. And this has really been a crucial boost to the Republican Party by giving it this, it's enabled minority authoritarianism to emerge in a democratic context. That's the other important thing. Republicans, Trump in 2020 really went over the edge and was pushing for it clearly illegal active re reassessments of election outcomes. Now they want to do it legally using legally authorized empowerment of state legislatures to, to do what Trump was barred from doing, even by his own judges. And whether the courts will support that activity, but it does have the patina of, uh, of, of, of having been approved by state legislatures. There have been votes and they have adopted policies and shifted power in ways that uh, are public and are known to people. It's not clear whether the courts will support that, but that's, but that's up in the air. So we have a very interesting tension going on now going into the 2024 election. You point out that, that none of this is happening in the people that you, you quote in the article that none of this is happening by accident, that it's all been carefully planned by groups like the Federalist Society, you know, things like appointing extremist judges, gerrymandering, you know, the list uh, uh, from, you know, elections in control of partisan officials, gerrymandering, partisan judicial appointments, extreme primary elections where they're moving further and further into in sort of this authoritarian movement. Uh, you know, and rich donors with outsized power. I can't remember who in the article said this, but they, what they needed was to interlock all those. Uh, each Different groups were working with plans in all these areas, and it needed to somehow interlock them all together. And, and Trump in 2000, by getting power in 2016, was, was sort of the opening they needed, and that the interlock is, is now kind of in place, particularly, as you say, with legislatures being able to overturn the results, judges that can rule to allow it to happen. Um, it's all sort of a lot more in place than than even people like myself who are pretty alarmed by all this uh, realized until I, I I read how you laid this all out with, with the people that you interviewed. Well, a lot of it, uh, there is there are some orchestrators, if you want to call it, like uh, uh, Leonard Leo at the Federalist Society has really played a major role, especially in the judiciary, but I think he's going beyond that. And there have been others. Uh, Ed Gillespie, who's now kind of withdrawn from politics, but he was very active. Carl Rove. But now you got Steve Bannon. One of the guys, he is, Steve Bannon is the one pushing for the takeover of the Republican Party structures through this 
precinct chairman initiative from the bottom up, and he is his call has resonated clearly uh, among many of his followers, who who basically are sort of extreme edge of the Republican Party and the, the pro probably the most violent edge would be or proclive a strongest proclivity to violence. But at the same time, it, it didn't need that much overall management because these things mesh together in depending on the circumstance you find yourself in. You you're someone you're in a in Clackamas County, and you suddenly realize, well, I could really run for office. Or if you're uh, in a state legislature and you're saying, we need to do something to regain power over this electoral college system, a lot of it sort of fits together and so it comes naturally. It's not like they're pushing buttons that aren't ready to be pushed. There's sort of already a lot of uh, energy and heat in the system ready ready for these for these people. Tom, the one thing you mentioned a minute ago is this is ultimately going to end up a lot of times in front of courts. And it, it strikes me as both very disconcerting and also, um, you know, kind of a sign of the times that we don't know what the courts are going to say on this. It's not like it's this so clearly an attempt that's so brazen and one-sided and out there that you know, no rational person could make a ruling on in favor of these kind of autocratic things. But with the way the courts have been set up, you know, over the last 40 years, you mentioned the Federalist Society and and how kind of crafty they're being and how they're taking these on. It is no slam dunk that our court system that, you know, normally you'd think is kind of the, you know, where where these things stop, you know, they, they might get away with this. No, there's no. Uh... I think we now have a Supreme Court is no longer a reliable break on extremism. You don't know. They might well re reject this Harper case, but they might well accept it. They might endorse the, uh, the, the, the theory that underlies the, the North Carolina people who brought the case. But we do have this situation where the Supreme Court itself is now, it used to be the Supreme Court when it was tilted left or right, basically there was a central area where you did you couldn't go outside the boundaries on one side or the other. This Supreme Court, the boundaries have been really, the envelope has been pushed way to the right. And it no longer is a reliable source of maintaining consensus. They are willing clearly in the Dobbs case to defy public opinion. Uh, and they're willing to defy uh, precedent. This is a we we have a, a, a the legal system is is a new animal now, but people haven't really recognized the degree. Dobbs is the only case that really has brought this home to roost so far. One of the things, though, I think that gets to this is, uh, you know, I, and I think it was Rich Hansen who who spoke to this. It, you know, when you look at how the state legislatures that have been dominated by Republicans have changed the, their laws about elections, uh, you know, so that Republicans in a state won by Democrats could simply meet and declare that local administrators or courts have deviated from the legislature's own rules, and therefore the legislature will take matters into its own hands and choose its own state of electors for the Electoral College. I mean, that is what kind of one of the things we're talking about. 
but the scarier part about that then is it's now in the courts if that's what's going on and as hansen again points out i think you talked about this in in your piece the january 6th insurrection and trump's actions trying to change the electoral college votes in five states was an attempted coup built on the big lie of voter fraud but the potential coup next time will come in neatly filed legal briefs and arguments quoting Thomas Jefferson and wrapped in ancient precedents and purported constitutional textualism. It will be no less pernicious. When I read that, that's when I thought, uh, again, how important the piece is, but how uh, important was to get get you on this episode uh, and talk about this. But it's that's pretty scary stuff, given where the courts are right now. No, I think uh, Hansen, Hassan was right on target in that. And he actually is uh, making the point, basically, that you can have democracy undermined by democracy or the by apparent democracy, that the system of having votes in state legislatures publicly done, uh, hearings probably, the whole procedural part of democracy can be abided by and have an anti-democratic outcome. Uh, and uh, then the judicial review becomes crucial. And in this case, judicial review, another pillar of democratic, the functioning of a democratic system, even judicial review becomes an ally of the under of the weakening of the democratic system itself. And so the, the ability of democracy to, uh, to protect itself is really challenged at this point. And uh, where that's going to go, I'm just not sure. Well, I'll be, I'll be, it's, it's clear that all this is, is now up in the air in 2024, and the legal rulings that come out of it are going to be crucial to the future of the country. Uh, yeah, if I said Rich Hansen, I meant Hassan, obviously, but we'll also include in the show notes uh, his piece, Trump is planning a much more respectable coup next time. I think it goes well with the piece you wrote. Yeah, no, he does. I, after we've laid out, and, and I, I want to make sure I also, you also quoted in a, in a previous piece, uh, Judge Ludig, uh, you Listeners probably remember him from the January 6th hearings, but he said, our democracy is under vicious, unsustainable, and unendurable attack from within. And, you know, there's a couple other pieces out there that are saying things like the calls are coming from inside the house. What do we do is, is kind of my question. And I'm curious, Joe, as to your take on this too, but other than, okay, we're shining a spotlight on it as best we can, sharing it, but how do we fight this? If the Democrats really want to put up a fight, the, the, the one institution they they control that can do this is the Senate, where they can hold hearings, and they they probably some committee should initiate a whole set of hearings on democracy and the state of democracy in the country. Turned out in the twenty twenty two election that this issue of democracy was a stronger issue than most people thought it would be. Biden spoke about. The issue right before the election, a lot of people said, oh, he's talking into thin air. Turned out in the exit polls that a lot of people are concerned about the state of democracy. I think the only way you get people concerned about it is to get it on, a, in, on the nightly news 
which in general is pretty terrible, uh, and get it on the front pages of the newspapers and get it forced into the public debate. And the only vehicle I can see to do that in an immediate sense is, is the Democratic-controlled Senate, where it, like the Senate Judiciary Committee could take this kind of thing up. Uh, maybe Homeland Security could take it up. I'm not sure what jurisdiction you'd want to pick, but maybe more, maybe a, 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 a combined committee. But in order for this to be taken seriously, I think Democrats have to step up to the plate and make it serious. It's it's not it's just, it's not gonna it isn't happening in the vacuum that we are now operating in. No, I mean that Senate hearings on democracy. I, I think that's a great idea, and I I, I think it's uh, that alone may make the uh, this episode worth having you on because I think we need to get that idea out there. So I work to get get that out there uh, on this podcast and and other places. The one thing though, Tom, that I I did there was one paragraph in the piece that was about how it you know Democrats aren't fueling the the violence that's you know Republican that's coming mostly from the mega controlled GOP, but that we sometimes the way we we react we're actually helping push more people towards MAGA. Can you, do you agree with that? Or, I mean, I, I think it was somebody else that you quoted, but, it, it, and can you speak to that a little bit about how true that is or, or what we should be worried about? Uh, it was Rachel Kleinfeld who, who works on this kind of issue for the Carnegie Foundation, as I think, uh, who said that. And I think she does have a point. I think that Democrats tend to, if you look at the MAGA universe, say maybe it's 30, 40 million people, it's a lot of people. A lot of them are, if you met them on the, in the grocery store or the coffee shop, they're, they're decent people who would help you out if you were sick. They would uh, help take care of you. They have good families. They are not evil people per se. That, but they see the Democratic Party as really pushing issues that are alien to them and trying to create a society that is not the society that they want to live in. And I think the Democratic Party has got a lot of work to do to reduce its perception. I mean, Hillary Clinton really did a lot of harm by saying they're all by saying half of them are deplorable. Uh, Obama did this when he said these are people who turn to their guns and their religion to seek solace with basically disparaging this whole constituency and the whole the the defining of this whole universe as racist when certainly there are racists and there are many of them in this constituency but you cannot throw labels like that around Easily, there is, you're going to end up alienating and losing forever people who you really need. The Democratic Party claims to be the party of the working class. It has really got a problem making that claim legitimately now. And if it's going to get back to that in some way, it's got to do something to basically be able to show that, yes, in fact, it does represent 
the working class, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, etc. At the moment, it doesn't. And there are, this is a whole new area of conversation, but the Democratic Party has a lot of things it needs to do. So, Tom, I mean, I guess that's, isn't Biden trying to do that? Or do you think he's just, he's stuck? You know, I mean, part of it is there's so many voices in the party, right? I mean, that you can have Biden, you know, try to be, you know, I think, get back to, more of the economic arguments and job creation and those kinds of things, but still the, the cultural issues that drive a lot of the voices on both sides, right? And, and they feed off each other uh, is, is part of the problem, I, I would guess. Is that, is that what you're, you're saying, or, or am I hearing you wrong? No, I think Biden does on his economic policies, especially with the infrastructure bill, uh, want to do things that actually would be visible and job providing uh, for many of the voters who the party has lost. Having a big highway or expansion of a big highway, repairs, bridge repairs, that's those that are highly visible and can be seen by people. And, and that's starting to happen with the legislation now getting uh, hitting the rubber on the road. Where there is a cultural problem, and Biden hasn't addressed that. And I think they also, Democrats are seen as weak on crime, and they have not asserted themselves in a way. People are scared of crime. There's no question. You can't politically, you can't be wishy-washy on an issue like that. There, there's a lot more, but I think Democrats have to figure out really how to address the transgender issue, for example. That's another one that uh, causes a lot of questions. I think on there has to be a more forthright attempt by Democrats to show that they're not necessarily pushing critical race theory, but they do support education that includes covering the history of this country and its racial problems, and to try to make some kind of distinction between where they stand and where Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin and so forth stand. But one that is I, I don't. It's again. I, I'm not a policy person, but something, some way to figure to get through that, so that they don't sound knee-jerk liberal, but they do assert basic American values, and including the importance of knowing the real history of this country. But we could go down the list, and, and the list is long. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I'm not. I think there are plenty in the of Democrats who understand that, and then there's also, again, there are people who are gonna who want to, you know, want the reform they want, and they want it right now, which is something I learned coming up in as a Democrat in the '70s and '80s can cost you 12 years in the wilderness if you push too hard, too fast in a country that that it particularly is even more polarized today. So I, I understand what. What you're talking about, I, I just think it's very tough. You know, their party is so autocratic now and top down, and the Democratic Party has so many different voices that that you know, or whether it, it's gun violence or you, you know, or trans or some of these other issues that are important, they it's hard to it's hard to get people to say no. I'm not going to fight for for those those rights. We have to have better language though, or better ways to to voice it, I think, but I'm not sure 
other than Biden, you know, it's basically, you know, the president, I think he tried to do that a little bit in the state of the union when he talked about um, supporting the police. You, you know, I mean, he kind of actually took some hits in the party for doing that, but I think it was the right move. No, I agree. Uh, but I think it's just a first step rather than a, uh, Clinton, when he ran in 1992, took on took on the Democratic Party on a number of fronts, and it turned out to be a successful political strategy in the 92 campaign. He, and he set a precedent that if he had followed through, through on it, might could have changed the character of the party. He basically abandoned it as soon as he took office and got caught up in a whole bunch of, of issues of just the kind that he was trying to avoid. But uh, but I, I I don't know. I th- I think there's potential for a a tough assertive Democratic candidate to win the nomination and to put the car- party on a better course. But I don't see a candidate right now in the wings who's positioned and or equipped to do that. And, uh, Biden is sort of a good decent man, but he doesn't convey the strength or authority that. I think need to be there for the party to really regain credibility. I think he well could win re-election, however. Well, I think look, the the the, the key here is if we stay focused on Dobbs, on women's abortion rights, on um, on pro-democracy. I think your your idea of of the Senate holding democracy hearings uh, and exposing a lot of this this stuff to the public and making it you know, constant uh, on the nightly news. Um, also, I think, you know, the gun violence, I think, and, and the Republican parties and, you know, subsidiary being the NRA, you know, the NRA and, and doing nothing. I mean, all those things, the, the more we stay there and not, not fall into their culture war trap of which they're going to do. I mean, that's part of their playbook. The more we stay focused on the things that work and not get tangled up with things like defund the police or that that literally hand them a weapon to fuel their the fire on their side uh, and that fear that works for them uh, of why why people are drawn to, okay, well, that's my choice. I'm going with the MAGA guys because, you know, I, I want somebody who's, who's not going to talk about stuff like that or trans or any of the other things that they'll, they'll be throwing at us, and they will. I just think that's the key, particularly at this moment when, when democracy itself, in other words, I, I don't care, you know, the, part, our, the Democratic Party can have a healthy debate about how to uh, tackle crime and long, you, you know, uh, from the root causes to how to tackle it today. That, that debate normally, I think, you know, would be healthy, you know, in a primary, you know, and have somebody come out the other side. Right now, though, it's almost like that debate helps fuel the other side. In a, in a, you know, I mean, it helps give them fuel to because they'll take anything and and turn it into another outrage on Fox. And the other thing, I mean, that's the other thing we're not talking about is the outrage machine that they did build during all this too. It wasn't just the Federalist Society; it was literally Breitbart, Alex Jones, all those people who literally just feed the fire. And I think we need to avoid that and stay on the, 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 the issues that we know and have seen, like in Wisconsin recently, really work to turn out Democrats and the pro-democracy side at this really important time. But, uh, Tom, I really want to thank you for coming on. And, and we'll, like I said, we'll have the piece in the, 
in the show notes. Thanks for everybody for listening to that trippy show. We'll include a link to Tom's piece in the show notes. I do want to say a couple of things. One is I've seen the complaints that my mic or mics are sometimes off and on. I just want to explain to people like Alex had to leave the show a few minutes ago to go catch a plane. He's on the road. When we are, we don't necessarily carry the best microphone with us. Uh, so we, I understand, but we're on the move quite a bit. Uh, and I just want to remind her that this podcast will always be free. It's now part of Resolute Square. Check out the latest at ResoluteSquare.com slash trippy. Please subscribe to that trippy show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. And you can always send us a question to that trippy show at gmail.com or leave us a question and a review on iTunes. We'll see you next week. Tom, thanks so much for coming on and uh, thanks for that piece. I think it's one of the more important pieces I've seen in a long time. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.